A reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it, is how, as it, as it has blah, <laughs> now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ, and to make everyone see what is plan that what what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. The word of the Lord. I wonder what would happen if the gospel actually became good news again. I mean, after all, the word gospel, it literally means good news. Like, doesn't it? (laughs) And I just think that as a country, and as a church, and as families, and as individual people, we could all use some good news for a change, because if you have not noticed, there's not a whole lot of it going around these days, my friends. And furthermore, for many people in our country, the way that the message of Jesus has been preached to them Well, it sounded like anything but good news. These folks walk away from the church's teachings feeling ashamed and belittled and judged because these churches intentionally try to make them feel this way. It's part of the goal. I mean, I remember back in college, I took a preaching class. I went to conservative Baptist college, and I took a preaching class that was taught by a fairly popular evangelical minister in the St. Louis area at that time. He's definitely one of the favorite faculty members of the department. But he actually told us in class one day that for people to be receptive to the gospel, the good news of God's love through Jesus Christ, you, the preacher, you have to first tell them how sinful and despicable they are. If they don't come to recognize just how sinful and wretched they are in the eyes of God, he said. He didn't really sound like that, by the way. (laughs) Uh, But that's the best voice I can come up with. You don't convince them of how wretched they are in the eyes of God, he said. People will never reach out 
for God's grace. So basically, he was saying that people will never reach out for a solution if you don't convince them first that they have a problem, like an eternal damnation problem. It is your job as preachers to convince them of this truth, he said boldly. Man, college was a long time ago, friends, but I remember even back then thinking to myself that I am somebody who needs no convincing, no convincing whatsoever of my own despicableness. Yeah, I've been living with a keen awareness of my own shame, unworthiness, and brokenness for my entire life. Thank you very much. (laughs) No preacher could ever convince me of my own wretchedness any more than I had already convinced myself. Yeah, I got it. I'm good. (laughs) That's not what I need. What I needed was for someone to try to convince me that I was lovable, regardless of how I felt about myself, that God still extends grace to me, despite all the ways I have utterly and epically failed in my life. And this, my friends, it's precisely the type of good news that we are invited to accept. It's exactly the gospel that we are asked to place our faith in, that God loves us with an infinite, inexhaustible, unconditional love, regardless of how we feel about ourselves, regardless of what we have or have not done. God loves us so much so that he would die on a cross for us, so much so that he would take on mortality with us. God loves us like a spouse. It's not enough for him to feel fuzzy feelings for us from afar, like a secret admirer. No, God wants total union with us. God wants to participate in our lives. And he wants to share the fullness of his divine life with us. He wants to share in our mortality so that we can share in his divinity. Unfortunately, this radical view of the gospel, well, to me, honestly, it's not radical. It just makes sense. Does it make sense to you? I don't think it's that radical. But unfortunately, this view of the gospel, this radical view of God's unconditional love, it's been all but lost to us today. Do you want to know what one of the main things, really the, the main thing that originally drew me into the Episcopal Church was? It wasn't primarily the church's progressive social teachings or its liturgical tradition or the wonderful ways Episcopalian churches serve their communities. I mean, that's all great and it's wonderful, but that's not what drew me in originally. No, what drew me in was the fact that our church doesn't sweep aside the radical things that the church fathers and mothers said about God, like so many other traditions do today. They sweep their voices aside. But in our our tradition, the voices of the church fathers and mothers, their radical countercultural edge can still be felt, can still be heard. And to make no mistake about it, the church fathers, these ancient saints, these folks who gave us like the Nicene Creed, they were quite radical in many of the things they taught, especially in the things they said about God and what God is up to in our world. 
And I noticed years ago that the ways in which they defined the gospel, it was way different from the ways in which many modern preachers define the gospel today. I mean, if you can go and ask pretty much any minister today, most ministers, to sum up the gospel for you, to share the gospel to you, they will say something similar to what my old college professor said. That even though you are an evil sinner in God's eyes, fully deserving of the fiery torments of hell, Jesus died on a cross for you, suffering God's wrath in your place. Yay! Rejoice! God basically hated you before, but he's fixed all of that now because he murdered his son on a cross. (laughs) What? This is supposed to be good news? Like, how is this good news? But here's the thing. If you could travel back in time and ask pretty much any of the church fathers, or mothers for that matter, about the true meaning of the gospel, you'd get a radically different and universal answer from them. And most of us today would not only be shocked by what they said, but we'd be scandalized by their words. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, Augustine, Gregory Nazianzus, Maximus the Confessor, Thomas Aquinas, and so many more. If you could have tapped them on the shoulder and asked them what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about, do you know how they all would have answered you? They all, all would have said that God entered the world through Jesus Christ so that you might become what he is. Don't believe me? Here's some quotes. Irenaeus said that God became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is in himself. Clement of Alexandria said that the word became human so that you might learn from a human being how a human being can become God. Yeah, yeah, you heard that right. Athanasius, the father of orthodoxy, right? In his famous work on the incarnation, he wrote that the Son of God became man so that we might become God. St. Augustine, he said the exact same thing in a sermon once. God became human so that humans might become God. Thomas Aquinas affirmed his teaching, quoting Augustine directly. And St. Maximus the Confessor, he taught something really fascinating. He said that before creating anything, God made the decision to separate all of history into two different ages, two distinct eras. And the first age was the age where the divine was to become human. And the second age is the age whereby human beings are to become divine. According to him, the first age has already happened because God already became human in Jesus Christ. So this means that we're living in the second age, the one where humans are invited to learn how to become divine. Lancelot Andrews, one of the greats from our Episcopalian slash Anglican tradition, he echoed Maximus's teaching directly. He said that the age of the Old Testament was the age where God became a partaker of our human nature, And that the great promise of the New Testament is that we will all become partakers of God's nature. Like, how about that?
for an altar call. How about that? Not accept Jesus Christ into your hearts as your personal Lord and Savior so that you can avoid the fiery torments of hell and get into heaven one day after you die. No, how about this? How about accept Jesus Christ into your hearts as your personal Lord and Savior so that you can become everything he is? So that you can learn what it means to manifest the fullness of heaven in your life, starting like right now. Can I get an amen? (laughs) I mean, is this not the very mystery that Paul is talking about today? In our reading from Ephesians, Paul says that the mystery of Christ was not known to the former generations of humankind, humankind, that this plan, this mystery was hidden for a long time in God, the previous age, right? But now this mystery has been revealed to everyone, and this gospel is good news for everybody, not just some people. The great epiphany has dawned, and everyone who is wise will follow the star into the heart of the mystery, like wise men. Paul says that everyone now has the opportunity to become heirs, sharers of the promise of Christ, and members of his body. In other words, we have the opportunity to unfold this divine mystery within us, to cooperate with God's grace as partakers of his nature. It is by grace that God became what we are. It is by grace that God makes us into what he is. And we have this wonderful opportunity to cooperate with this grace. Like, what better news in all of the universe is there than this? God has already met you in your humanness, and he's now inviting you to embody his divinity through your humanness. It's one of the greatest modern Romanian theologians said, well, one of the greatest Romanian theologians, period, as he has said, the glory to which we human beings are called is that we should grow more godlike by growing ever more human. Why? Because God revealed what it means for him to be God through a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. The call, then, my friends, is to descend with God into our humanity so that we can ascend with him into his divinity. It's really one and the same movement. I mean, this is the good news. This is the gospel. That through Jesus Christ, God is overcoming all duality between your humanity and his divinity. The good news is that God shares in your life so that you can share in his. That your life can be completely infused with uncreated light if you so choose it. That your life can be completely enveloped in God's divine presence if you so desire it. Now, the question, of course, the obvious one is, like, how do we do this? How do we come to share in his life? How do we, as the church fathers and mothers say, how do we become what he is? Well, there was, again, a unanimous and universal answer given to that question as well, with some nuances and some differences, but it was, the central focus was the same. All the fathers and the mothers of the ancient church said that we are to spend every waking second of our lives conforming our lives to Jesus's life. As Paul said in one of our daily office lessons from this last week, we are to become 
imitators of God. It is by patterning our lives after the Christ pattern that we come to share in God's divine life. We embody his divinity. We put it on through our actions. I mean, how does that beautiful hymn go after all? Where true charity and love dwell, God himself is there. We are to imitate Jesus' virtues, his compassion, his love, his justice, his authenticity, etc. But we must be cautious not to miss the first crucial step in all of this. We mustn't skip over the previous age. Before we can imitate Jesus' virtues, before we can participate in his divine life, we must first imitate him in his coming to us. We have to meet him precisely where he has met us. In our humanness, in our humanity. The significance of the incarnation, it's not that God became one man, one dude a long time ago, but that God took on the whole of human nature, all of human nature, in Jesus Christ. Like the wise men, we must go to the place where Christ has come to us. For Christ has been born in the Bethlehem that is your life, in the manger that is your heart. You must first discover how the word has become flesh in you, before you can live fruitfully from this union. So like wise men, we must follow the guiding star to the place where the Christ child is perpetually birthed within us before we can offer him any of the virtues of our gold, frankincense, and myrrh. For this epiphany story, it's not about something that God did 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. No. Excuse me. It's about something that God has been doing for the last 2,000 years in the human heart. This, this is the gospel, my friends.